And I take uh, that opportunity to uh, speak to the parents and the extended family directly and then indirectly to the church family as well because it takes a team effort to raise our children to love the Lord. It isn't just a mom and a dad that do that. There are all kinds of influences around those children. There are, uh, there are aunts and uncles. I'm from the South. You have to put it with me saying aunt. Amen? Aunts and uncles. There are um, uh, grandmas and grandpas. There are cousins. There are uh, extended family, that uh, friends, close friends that uh, act as though they're part of the family. There are Sunday school teachers. And then you say, well, Pastor, I don't want to hold any of those roles of any of the children that are here today. And I've got to tell you that if you are here and you are around our church regularly, uh, then uh, the way you live your life, it matters. It matters. The children are watching you, and they are going to follow you. Some of you here take after a special trade uh, or a, a hobby, and uh, there will be a child in the church that grows up, and they will watch you from a distance, and they will want to be what, like you and follow you. I remember as a teenage boy, there was a man in our church named Jerry Bridge, and Jerry had no direct influence over me, but Jerry was a bow hunter. And uh, I would go to Brother Jerry after church, and I would talk to him about bow hunting, and he gave me my first crossbow. I never used it to kill anything. But I had it. I'd go out in the garage and I'd work on pulling that thing back. Brother Jerry uh, worked as a mechanic at a, uh, at a shop uh, for Maryland School for the Blind. And I'd go over there and, and uh, talk to him and he'd show me things under the hood. And Brother Jerry wasn't my dad. Brother Jerry didn't have uh, any influence over me per se other than the influence I gave him. You may be here today and think, well, I'm not a parent or my kids are grown or uh, my, none of my kids are involved in this. I'd say sit up straight and tall and listen because you are helping directly or indirectly, to raise uh, the next generation uh, to come. And if we know anything, we know, watching the kids of today, well, they need all the help they can get. Amen? Amen? Everybody thinks that the children being raised behind them are worse than their, their generation. This goes back a long ways. But I've got to tell you that I, the, the generation of kids that are coming up, uh, they are lost because they've been controlled their whole life. And even into their adulthood, they're controlled. There's a reason why children are staying at home longer than ever before, not, not moving out, making their own way. Mom and Dad are not allowing them to learn how to live life on their own. And uh, children are lost. I, I went to a conference some years ago, and uh, we had um, uh, one of the men speak. He was a president of a Bible college, or rather a liberal arts Christian college, and he said that uh, he attended a conference where the Chick-fil-A CEO spoke. And he said that uh, as of er- the mid-2000 uh, decade, uh, people were showing up to interview for an executive position within, within the company and bringing a mother with them to do the interview. He said the biggest problem they face with correcting uh, an employee in their 20s and 30s is that the uh, the uh, the 20 or 30 year old will go home and have their mom call in to complain about their child being corrected. This is where we're at. This is what we're dealing with. And our children need all the help they can get in being raised right. In a White Oak Baptist Church, we want to have an environment uh, where these children are taught the Bible, taught how to live life, taught how to, uh, to do it according to God's Word. So the message today is to the parents and the extended family of the children dedicated 
And then beyond that, it's to everyone here with children. And then beyond that, it's to everyone who attends here who is helping to influence our children. Let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Samuel 1, verse 21, down through verse number 28. We will read these responsibly. I'll read the odd number of verses alone. We'll read the even-numbered verses out loud together. I'll begin in verse 21. We'll all begin together in verse 22. The Bible says in verse 21, And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth thee good, tarry until thou hast weaned him, only the Lord established his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour and a bottle of wine and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. So long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Let's uh, preach a sermon this morning by this title, Teaching My Children to Love the Lord. Teaching My Children to Love the Lord. Let's pray. God, this morning we ask that you help us to understand the passage and Lord, the, uh, uh, how that we can raise children to do right in a culture that is doing wrong. We can raise our children to love you in a culture that hates you. We can raise our children, Lord, to keep you first when everyone else seems to want to make you last. And so, Lord, I pray that today the parents would take this message to heart. And, Lord, as a church body, we would do our part to raise our children, our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews. Lord, the children of this church, to be children that love you with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let me begin by saying this morning that Samuel would be one of Israel's greatest prophets. Be one of Israel's greatest prophets. Samuel would grow up and be Israel's last judge. He would anoint Israel's first and second king. And uh, would raise his, uh, would raise, be raised in a way that pleased the Lord on quite an incredible level. But Samuel did not arrive to this level of greatness on his own. Samuel had a lot of help to get there. And Samuel was uh, taught from the moment he was born that he would uh, need to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have a problem with society today. And Satan, uh, he pulled a fast one on our culture, I would say, around a hundred years ago. And we are beginning to see the grave effects on Satan's uh, move, his swap that he made. Um, It used to be taught in America, both in the school system and by the neighbors and by the parents and by the culture at large, that 
You did right because the Bible says to do right and because God says that you are to do right. Used to be that that's how it worked. We taught that in all of culture and society. Somewhere along the way, Satan convinced us or was able to get the culture to change that. And here it became the motto, you don't do right because God said so. No, you do right for right's sake. You do right for right's sake. Instead of worshiping the God of morality, we began to worship morality itself. We began to decide that we didn't need God to tell us what morality is, but because we are a good Christian, Judeo-Christian culture, we can figure out morality on our own, and so we began to worship morality instead of the God of morality. The problem with that is, is that as the human nature slides away from right, generation by generation, the definition of what's right and wrong continues to change. Continues to change. The Bible says that in the last days, the uh, uh, right would be called wrong, good would be called evil. And we now see that is that uh, now if you want to raise your child in more of a traditional sense, you are looked upon as being narrow-minded and teaching your child things that are bigoted and hateful. And i got to tell you that there has been a certain way that we have raised children in this world for thousands of years. We're not going to some, let some elitist cultural culturalist tell us now that we're a bunch of crazies for raising our children uh, to be God-fearing, Bible-loving, Bible-believing people. Amen? Why did Samuel live for God? Well, Samuel lived for God because his parents were dedicated to love God themselves first. Let me say that again. Samuel loved God because his parents loved God. Samuel dedicated himself to serve God Because he had a mom and dad who were totally dedicated to God themselves. If you, mom and dad, I just prayed over your babies. If you are not dedicated to the Lord, your children are not going to dedicate themselves to the Lord. Or there's a very small chance that that will happen. I've shared this before. I'll share it again here. I have grown up in church my entire life. Uh, I have uh, watched as my peers grew up with me, and now I have watched as I've been a, a pastor of some sort for 10 years. I have seen children that have been raised in godless homes where mom and dad wanted nothing to do with church. I've seen those children dedicate their hearts to God and serve God uh, with their life, uh, either whether that was in ministry or just by being faithful to church and loving God. And I have seen children that have been raised in homes that had a mom and dad who were dedicated to the Lord and loved God and were Faithful to, the, faithful to the word, both inside and out. No, they weren't perfect, but they gave their best effort. I've seen their children turn out right. right. But I have yet to see a home where mom and dad were mediocre in their love for God, mediocre in their relationship with God, mediocre in their uh, uh, faithfulness to God, turn out children who are anything other than mediocre at best for God. You see, mom and dad, if you're not dedicated to the Lord, your children are not going to be dedicated to the Lord. Now, I want to give you, uh, by way of introduction, I want to give you parents here four things that you need to jot down and make sure that you are constantly reviewing and asking yourself, how well am I doing on these four things? And this is by way of introduction. I'll move through them quickly. The first one is this. Be sincere. Be sincere. Mom and dad, they, your children need to know not that you're perfect, but that you're trying. You're trying. By the way, uh, uh, church member. 
The children of this church need to know that you aren't perfect, but boy, you sure are doing your best to live the Christian life the way it's supposed to be lived. They want to know that, hey, you're doing your best to be faithful to church. You're doing your best to walk with God. You're doing your best to struggle through the Christian life. No, you're not perfect, and no one's expecting you to be perfect. If you were to pull my two children up here and inject them with truth serum and stick a microphone in front of their face and interview them, they could tell you all kinds of shortcomings that Dad has. Not very many Mom has, but all kinds that Dad has. They know that I've got my shortcomings. They know what they are. They live with me. They see me at my best. They see me at my worst. But one thing my children will tell you, truth serum or not, one thing they'll tell you is that when dad messes up, he's quick to apologize for his mistake. And he loves God and is sincere about his walk with God. Mom and dad, if you're going to have any chance at raising those babies, those young people to do what's right, your children need to know that you indeed are sincere. The second thing I'd like to share with you this morning is be sentimental. Be sentimental. This is easy for the culture at large. And moms, it's especially easy for you to dote and love all over those babies, right? Uh, to, uh, to, to, to just pour affection all over them. Uh, our culture kind of goes in pendulum shifts. It seems like every 80 years we're on one end of the pendulum or the other. We go from the we culture to the me culture. Right now we're hitting the pinnacle of the we culture. If you look back 80 years, it was more the ind- rugged individualist culture. And you can follow this trend going on back. We are right at the pinnacle of the we culture. Have you noticed that everybody is uh, involved in a cause? That seems to be the, the deal of the millennials, right? They, they want to be involved in a cause, and they think that by liking some cause on Facebook, somehow they're making a contribution to the world. Have you noticed that? And uh, uh, it's, uh, all, it's all about donating a dollar to this fund and that fund. And uh, my favorite is McDonald's, and they say, would you like to donate a dollar to fight childhood obesity? And you're going, What? Um, do you want me to buy you out and shut you down? Maybe that would fight childhood obesity. Uh, but there seems to be causes all the way around. We live in a culture where mom and dads coddle and dote on and love on their babies. There may be somebody here today that's more of the militaristic type style. You don't need love. You just need roles. And i got to tell you, you need to learn to love that child. By the way, love for a child... T-I-M-E. So spend time with that child and be sentimental with that child. Care for their needs. Listen to them when they have a frustration and a problem. Uh, uh, Don't be so rigid with your rules that when your child is struggling with it, they can't sit down with you and talk through that with you. Uh, No, there needs to always be respect. There's never any room for disrespect, but be sentimental, be sensitive, be caring, be loving toward your child. Now, I do believe that of uh, the, the, the four that I'm going to give you by way of introduction this morning, this is the one most parents struggle with the least. I do think parents really, really today struggle with this next one. Number three, be strict. Be strict. Parents seem to have a hard time being strict. Uh, when I say strict, I mean enforce the rules. Have rules. And to the degree that you love a child... To that same degree, you get to enforce the rules with that child. I watched as one of my uh, siblings 
who was born later in my parents' life, struggled with uh, being obedient with my uh, dad one time, and even gave him a little bit of lip back in his teenage years. And my dad did very little about it. And I got talking to one of my sisters about that later. And I said, I wonder why dad let that go. And she said, could it be that as he has aged, as he's gotten older, and he's not quite spent as much time with the children, he knows that the relationship isn't as deep to enforce the rules like he did on us, and that he was showing wisdom there by not being as strict. My friend, today, if you are loving all over your children, your children need you to balance that out with being strict. They need to know that there are rules and that you enforce those rules. To those of you here with small ones, let me give you a couple of uh, ideas here of maybe when to start being strict. The ch- child usually, uh, when they're first born, uh, they cry because they're hungry. They cry because they want to be held. They cry because they need their diaper change. They cry because they're gassy. They cry for all kinds of uh, reasons. And uh, adults really cry for many of the same reasons as well, right? Uh, but uh, uh, don't cry for that. But as they get a little bit older, they become more cognitive and they know what's going on. You say, well, how do I know when my child is really showing me uh, a spirit of rebellion? The very first time that you're holding your child and he arches his back, that's a good sign that child understands rebellion. You can't let that go. You have to correct that. When you try to buckle a child into a car seat, and they are set back up, and they won't let you buckle in that car seat, that's a good idea. That child has a, a knowledge of what's going on. When Angela had April, April was our stubborn one of the two, and Angela was uh, trying to buckle April into her car seat at the store one day, and we had a lady parked uh, next to Angela. I wasn't. There was just Angela and April and Matthew. Matthew was in his car seat all buckled in. April was giving Angela her usual fit. She must have been one, one and a half, and she's arching the back, and what Angela buckle her in the, the car seat there, and the lady sitting next to Angela is glaring out the window, and, and if you as much lay a finger on that child, I'm calling child services on you. Just giving her one of those looks, and Angela's looking over her shoulder and sees the lady, and she's trying to figure out how to get April buckled in, and yet not tip over the apple cart with this lady. And man, this battle must have went on for three or four or five minutes. Finally, Angela reached in, and with her fingernails, she gently, with a smile on her face, gently looking, but not so gentle, pinched the inner thigh of April really hard. Didn't draw blood, but really hard. And April began to wail and scream. And Angela buckled her in and looked over at the lady and said, Closed the door and pulled away. You gotta be strict. You gotta be strict. The fourth thing I want to share with you is be steadfast. Be steadfast. What do I mean by that? Be consistent. Be consistent. Hey, every Sunday, get up and go to church. You say, well, one of us is sick. Then one parent stay home with that child, everybody else goes to church. Okay? Some homes, one may be sick and nine people have to stay home. Right? Grandma and grandpa have to come over and help too, right? And everyone just ends up sitting on the couch and watching TV or, or hanging out in their bedroom. And all because one child is sick? No. Uh, one of you stay home with the baby and the rest of you go to church. And, and, uh, but, but be consistent. How about this? Uh, uh, when it comes to your punishing them, don't be on one day and off another. When it comes to your own walk with God, don't be on one month and off another. You send horrible mixed signals to that child. So mom and dad, if you can work on being sincere, being sentimental, being strict, and being steadfast, then what you're going to have is you're going to have children that are raised in a home where they know where the boundaries are, and they find great comfort living inside of them. Let's turn our attention to 1 Samuel this morning, and let's look at the story here of Hannah and Samuel. And I'm going to rush through here six 
uh, things that uh, six observations from this story about how they were able to raise Samuel to be such a godly young man. And let's let's take a look at this. This sermon's not being preached because we have a Samuel being dedicated, but boy, that sure works out this morning. Amen. Point number one of the message is this: Hannah's plea. Hannah's plea. Go back with me to First Samuel chapter one, and look with me at verse number one. The Bible says, "No, there was a certain man of Ramoth uh, in, in Zophim, of Mount uh, Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, Je- 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 the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and an Ephrathite." There we go, verse two. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children. But Hannah had no children. Let me just pause here and say there are some cultural things that uh, are weird to us today. Things that we don't do, such as sacrificing bullocks. We read about a few minutes ago. Uh, that was part of the, Jew, Jew, uh, the Jewish religion. Jesus has come and died on the cross. He has fulfilled the need to perform any sacrifices. But you find that in this chapter. You also find polygamy in this chapter. Uh, you say, well, did God endorse polygamy? And the answer is no. Early on in the Bible, God said that it's supposed to be one man and one woman for life. But nonetheless, we find it here, and that was part of the culture. I'm sure we'll get to heaven, and their culture will look at us and say, you guys did that, right? We look back and feel the same way about some of the things they did. Uh, So uh, we find Elkanah here. He's married to two women, Penina and Hannah. Verse 3, and this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice in the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's the priest of the Lord, uh, were there. Uh, and it was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary, this would be, uh, uh, this would be Penina, also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year... Uh, When she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? And then he said the stupidest thing he could have said, Am I not better to thee than ten sons? It's like, uh, you probably want to put those words back in your mouth there, Elkanah. Uh, But picture this with me. Every year they would travel uh, from their hometown into Jerusalem, and they would perform a sacrifice there. Uh, uh, and and each, each time they took this trip, Elkanah, or rather Penina, gave Hannah a hard time. You see, Elkanah's favorite was Hannah. He loved Hannah more. He cared for her more. Penina was rejected uh, as compared to Hannah. And so uh, Penina took what she had uh, as leverage on Hannah and really ribbed Hannah on it. You see, uh, Penina had children, but Hannah's womb was barren. And so every year when they'd make this trip, Penina would just give Hannah a hard time. And it really was a sore spot for Hannah. It really was a hard thing for her to deal with. It was a touchy subject, as you can imagine, that Hannah wanted babies, and God had given her this instinct to have babies and raise them, but God had, for one reason or another, shut up her womb and kept her uh, from having uh, babies. Look at verse number 9. So Hannah rose up uh, after that she had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she, Hannah, was in bitterness of soul 
and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give uh, unto the, thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come uh, upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abstinence, uh, uh, abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked uh, of him. So Hannah's plea, she went into the temple and she uh, was fasting, she refused to eat. She threw herself down there in the temple and she was weeping and sobbing and praying, saying, Lord, please open my womb. Please give me a baby. I, I want so bad to be a mother. And if you will open up my womb and give me a man child, I will take this child and I will give him back to you. Eli, the priest, was sitting there by the post and just uh, shooting the breeze, taking it easy, maybe taking a rest from his work in the temple. And he sees this woman moving her lips and he says to her, Hey, woman, what are you doing in here drunk? And she says, No, sir, I'm not drunk. I, I'm just filled with a sorrowful heart and, and I just want a baby. And you know what happened there uh, that day was that uh, God uh, told Eli that if, if she would just leave and obey, that God was going to open her womb. And sure enough, she went home and conceived. God gave her a baby. She prayed and she told God, under the conditions of me giving Samuel back to you, me giving him back to you, if you'll give me a baby under, the, if you'll give me a baby under those conditions, I'll give him back to you. Now, I want to make this point here, uh, is that couples, that baby that God's given you, that baby doesn't belong to you. You know, I think a big mistake that moms and dads make today is they take full ownership of that child. I look at my children in the face many, many times a year when I tuck them in bed. And I look them in the eyeball and I say this to them. I say, you do not belong to me. You belong to him. It is my job to raise you to love him so that you will do what He has planned for your life. That's a great thing to tell your children, moms and dads. Make sure you repeat that often. One day, they're going to leave you. And if they will love God, and you will teach them how to do that at a young age, and they'll understand that they belong to God, then guess what? They'll grow up and they have a much better chance of pleasing God with their life. Hannah understood that that baby that God had put in her womb did not belong to her. It belonged to the Lord. Number two, notice the couple's preparation. The couple's preparation. Sure enough, Hannah conceived and a boy was born. I think Hannah, when she found out she was pregnant, did not even question whether it was a boy or a girl. She made a promise to God, if you give me a man child, I will give him back to you. Eli said, sure enough, go home. You're going to get pregnant. She did. 
And so she had no question. She didn't need a gender test, right? She knew. Uh, not that they were available back then, but she didn't need that. She knew. And sure enough, Samuel was born and Samuel was given uh, uh, back to God and he was prepared for that day where he would be given back to him. Let me give you quickly a letter A to be here. Notice letter A, to appear before God. Uh, they prepared him to appear before God. Look at verse 22. So uh, context here, they're getting ready to go back on their yearly trip to Jerusalem and perform their uh, yearly sacrifice. And Hannah does not want to go. Hannah wants to stay. And, and nurture and teach her child. Look at verse 22. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned. And we believe that uh, in the culture back then that may have been three or four years old. And then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. Look at verse 23. And Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth thee good. Tarry until thou have weaned him. And look at this part. I have this underlined in my Bible. I would encourage you to do the same. Only the Lord establish his word. Now back in verse number 22, we see there where it says, uh, I, will not, I will not go up unto the uh, child be weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord. That he may appear before the Lord. Hannah and, uh, Hannah and Elkanah, every decision they made was with this thought in mind child is going to be presented before God, and God is going to check him one day. God's going to check him one day. Do you know that one day your child is going to stand before God and give an account for his life? Wow. Now, let's get some perspective and put that in front of us. That child that God gives you is going to give a one-on-one account. And what you pour into that child's mind and heart, how you prepare him and teach him and raise him, how you uh, set him up for life in the early years are so very important, uh, is going to have a lot to do with how well that meeting goes before God. They were preparing him. They were preparing him to appear before God. One day, when I stand before God and I give an account for my life and the works of my life, I want my mom and dad to be in the background. They won't be there with me, but I want them to be in the background. And I sure hope that they have a smile on their face and in their heart, knowing that their child is being told, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I can almost see my mom and dad high-fiving each other in the background, saying, We got him to a place, and he made the right decisions with his life. No, the book of my life is not closed, and I don't know whether or not that will happen. But boy, I sure hope my mom will get to enjoy that one day. And I hope I get to enjoy that one day as parents. My friend, if you're here today and you have children or grandchildren or you're an aunt and uncle, you do everything you can to prepare that child to appear before God. Let her be noticed they prepared him to abide with God. To abide with God. Look at verse 22. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord. Look here. And there abide forever. Abide forever. Um, They were going to take him and leave him in the temple and allow Eli to raise him after he was weaned. So the direct application here of this passage is they were preparing him from birth until three or four years old to be able to live in the temple and allow Eli to raise him. But uh, can uh, uh, can we make an application to all of us today? I want my child to abide with God. 
I want my children to learn that from me and my wife. What's that mean to abide? That means to spend time with. That means to be consistently around. Right? My wife will go on a trip or I'll go on a trip and and we'll be away from each other for either hours or days at a time sometimes and I'll get back around her and I said, I just missed hanging out with you. Just missed being around you. Some of you here work jobs that require you to pull a double, right? Or work all 24 hours straight. You get home and you're exhausted and you walk in the door and your spouse hasn't seen you or a relative hasn't seen you and and uh, someone you really enjoy being around hasn't seen you, and there's a, a, a yearning to get around and be with. Hey, I want God to know that I want to abide with Him. There is nothing better than when my impressionable son or daughter come out in the morning time and see me sitting on the couch, reading my Bible, or on my knees, talking to the Lord in prayer. You know what they're seeing? They're seeing me abide with God. That makes such an impact on a little guy, on a little lady. They grow up and they see that my walk with God is not just uh, uh, some sort of ritualistic, robotic thing where I go to church and I do my uh, uh, business, I maybe put a couple dollars in the plate and go about my way. No, my relationship with God runs deep. And when I run into a problem in my life and I don't know where to go or where to turn or what to do, that I grab the hands of my children and my wife and I bow my head and I say, let's talk to God about it. Let's get wisdom from the Lord. Let's let Him show us. And I'm teaching that child and we ought to teach Teach our children to abide with God, the couple's preparation. One day, your child is going to leave the nest, going to step out on their own. Now, those of you with babies think that's a long time from now. Everybody here that has adult children are going, no, it's not that long from now. Right? Raise your hand if you agree with that statement. It comes a lot faster than you think. Okay? You get to hold his hand for now, but you need to teach him how to hold the hand of the Lord forever. Teach him how to abide with the Lord. Teach her how to abide with the Lord. Number one, we saw Hannah's plea. Number two, uh, the couple's preparation. Let's look quickly at number three, the couple's presentation. Look at verse 24, chapter 1. When she had weaned him, she took him with her, with three bullocks, one ephah flower, a bottle of wine, and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh. The child was young, and they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him, or given him back to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord, and he worshipped He, the child, worshipped the Lord there. They brought him to the temple and they said, Lord, this is your child. He's going to serve you. His life belongs to you. Some of you moms and dads would do you really good to take that child and go through that same ritual. Now, I don't want you to bring him to the church and drop him off here for me to raise him, okay? We got our hands full as it is. But symbolically, have you given them back to the Lord? 
Or are you trying to vicariously live through that child to get them to do what you couldn't do? I see moms and dads who push their children so hard in areas of sports and art. They dictate to their child, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an architect. Me and your, me and your mother or me and your father, or uh, as a single parent, I've muddled through and, and, and made a meager living to give you all the chances in life. And the, the success, and really this is the crux of what I'm saying here, please hear me. The success of the parent for that child is not do they live their life to please the Lord, it's do they live their life to make the maximum amount of money. My friend, you can have all the money in the world and be a horrible failure. You can build the biggest biggest business in the world and be lonely. You can be sad. You can be depressed. Uh, You can have everything that money can buy you and find yourself to be awfully sad and lonely. But if you're walking and doing God's plan for your life, I've never met anyone who's gotten into their life, done what God wanted them to do, and said, boy, I sure regret that. I sure wish I hadn't done that. Not met anybody. And you're talking to someone who's been raised around church. Someone who's been around a whole lot of saintly people. we got a pew back here of saintly ladies, and they've given a good chunk of their life to serve the Lord. we got some other couples sprinkled throughout the building that have given their life to serve the Lord and love the Lord. And No, they haven't served God in full-time ministry, but they've been faithful to the house of God, and they, they've been faithful to the work of God here through the ministry of this church, and maybe in some cases prior to here other ministries. And uh, you, you go to them. Go to one of them and say, Do you regret ever coming to church? Do you regret ever serving in a ministry? Do you regret ever giving toward a cause at the church? Do you regret ever having invested? And they'd probably say, no, I wish I had done more. Those are the greatest days of my life. Those are the greatest moments of my life. Parents, take those children and present them to the Lord and say, God, this child is not mine, it's yours. One church service I sat in, a a young man uh, listened to a powerful sermon preached by a revival evangelist. And uh, the call was to full-time Christian service. And this 17-year-old boy who had been put through all the expensive prep schools and had been raised a particular way, he uh, he uh, really felt the calling of God on his life to go to the mission field. And as the invitation began, that boy stood up from his seat and he came running down the aisle to the front and he shook the hand of the pastor and he said, God's calling me to the mission field. I I want to give my heart to Jesus. Well, mom and dad invested thousands and thousands of dollars in this boy's future. And that dad wasn't going to have anything to do with it. So he shot down the aisle and he sat down with that boy and he said, You will not serve as a missionary. You will do what I have put my money in you to do. And I have to say, what a sad mistake. You know who that boy's God was to that dad? It was the dad. And my friend, it's not your place to present that child what you want for him. It's your place to present that child to God so God can do with him. Let's, quick, let's quickly move through the rest of the sermon here. Number four, notice Hannah's praise. Hannah's praise. I'm not going to spend any time on this this morning, uh, but I would encourage you later to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And what you find is that after Hannah leaves Samuel there at the temple to be raised by Eli the priest, on her way home, she prays a beautiful poem of praise to God that God has given her a child and allowed her to be able to give that child back to Him. Oftentimes, we spend hours in prayer asking God for something, and then when we get it, we forget to praise Him. Let's not be guilty of that. Hey, Mom, Dad, when you have gone three nights in a row 
on three hours of sleep because your child's sick, okay, uh, or your uh, child is uh, can't get days and nights turned around and figured out, uh, don't forget to praise God that he's given you that precious life to raise. Hannah's praise. Number five, Han- Samuel's progression. Samuel's progression. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26. And notice here that uh, mom and dad set Samuel up to succeed. Look at verse 26. Now, Samuel's no longer living with mom and dad. And by the way, before we read verse 26, if you know anything about his new dad, Eli, Eli was a terrible parent. Hophni and Phinehas, uh, God ended up killing Eli early because Hophni and Phinehas were not restrained from doing evil. You say, well, what kind of evil were Hophni and Phinehas doing? They were dipping the flesh hook down into the cauldron where they were to get their priestly meat, waiting while the meat was still not medium rare, bloody rare, putting it on and eating rare meat and causing an abomination to everyone who was watching in the temple. What else were they doing? They were going to the steps of the temple and finding the young ladies that were there. And they were seducing them into sleeping with them. The Bible calls them sons of Satan. Because of their behavior. God punished Eli because he did not restrain his children. So Samuel has now moved in at the age of three or four years old. And this man who has no idea how to parent is raising him. But somehow Samuel kept doing what was right. Why? Because from birth until four, mom had taught him how to love God. Mom had taught him how to develop and grow. Look with me. At chapter 2, verse 26, it says here, And the child Samuel grew on, continued to develop, continued to progress, and was in favor both with the Lord and also with man. There was a spiritual development. There was a social development. Look with me at chapter 3, verse number 19. The Bible says, And Samuel grew, he progressed, he grew. And the Lord was with him and did let none of his words Fall to the ground. So Samuel continued to grow socially and spiritually. Lastly, number six, let's look at Samuel's perspective. Samuel's perspective. How do you think Samuel viewed all of this? Well, his parents have dropped him off at the temple. Mom and dad come back to visit him once a year. Mom brings him a new coat and probably some food and all kinds of other goodies every time she comes and gets to spend a little bit of time with him. But Samuel knows that his life has been given to labor for God. Look at chapter 2, verse 11 with me. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Let's notice a letter A. He labored for God. He labored for God. Look at me in chapter 2, verse 11. And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house. And this is right after the boy's been dropped off. And the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. Look back there with me. Who did the child minister to? Who did he minister to? The Lord. It says he ministered unto the Lord... In the presence of or before Eli the priest. Hey, this is key right here. Are you catching this? Samuel had been trained by the time he was four that my labor and effort is not meant to please an adult. It's meant to please God and is observed in the presence of adults. Wow. Oh, that my children would do the chores around the house, knowing that they need to please God, not their mother and their father. Oh, that my children would do their homework in such a way so that it would be approved by the God who made them not good enough to slide by with a teacher or a parent. 
Oh, that my children would grow up to please God so that they do what's right, even when nobody adult is looking over their shoulder because they have been trained and taught at a young age that their labor is to be uh, uh, offered up to the Lord and not to a parent or another adult. Yes, parents are there to guide. Authority is there to help show when we're out of bounds or we're not in the right place. But we need to teach and train our children that they are not to labor to ask to please God, or not ask to please man, but to please God. You know how that works? If they hear you, mom and dad, talking about how that you, uh, mom, you cooked that meal, or in some cases, dad, you cooked that meal to the very best you can, and the phrase, that's good enough, never escapes your mouth. Boy, that sure shows the child that, no, good enough is when God is pleased. You know the adage, right? Less than your best. How's that go? Y'all, y'all, y'all know that? Oh, good. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to educate you today, right? I'm going to learn you something here. Write this down. Less than your best is a sin. My children could have finished that one. They hear that all the time. Less than your best is a sin. I tell my children all the time, I say, You can't use the phrase, that's good enough. No. Is it it approved by God? Is my effort approved by God? He labored for God. Boy, you train train them when they're this age, right here. Train them. Begin to teach them that everything you do matters. And in the presence of God, it matters. Pastor, is the push here to get our children to become preachers and missionaries and preachers' wives and And full-time Christian servants, well, yes, to become full-time Christian servants. To do that, receiving a paycheck from a church, not necessarily. Do you know that God needs Christian doctors? Christian policemen? Right? God needs men who run restaurants to be Christian. He needs uh, architects to draw drawings with a Christian attitude. He needs IT guys to do their job with a Christian attitude and a Christian heart. He needs musicians to do that in a way that pleases God with all their heart. No matter what school teachers, no matter what it is that you do, God wants you to do that so as to please Him. We always have to make sure we're investing that into our children. Letter B, and lastly, notice he listened to God. Maybe one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 1. We find a very innocent little Samuel, probably 8 or 9 years old, and this is a time when God spoke audibly to men. He doesn't do that anymore since the canon of Scripture has been closed or the Bible's been completed. But here, uh, during this era, the Bible says that well, we know that God spoke audibly uh, to man. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, and we find Samuel's first audible conversation with God. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in in those days. There was no open vision, and it came to pass at that time, when Eli was laid down in his place, place, and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. So you get the picture here, right? Everybody's laid down, everybody's going to sleep. The, uh, all the lights have gone out. The lamp that was in the temple, that's even uh, burned out, right? So it's dark, and we're entering that twilight zone, right? Where you're half awake, half asleep, okay? And that's where Eli is. Samuel's not quite there. He's a youngster. He's not quite asleep yet, but Eli is, he, he's, beginning, he's beginning to fade. Verse number um, uh, four. That the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am I, for thou callest me. 
And he, Eli, said, I called not, lie down again. And he went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli answered, I called not, my son, lie down again. Can you see, can you picture this? Twice now, he's gone into his room. And he's saying, you called me. I didn't call you, go lay down. I'm sure Samuel's thinking, am I hearing things? Is he messing with me? What's going on here? Verse number six. And the Lord called yet again Samuel. And unto Samuel, uh, and Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And answered, I called not my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt speak. So shall say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord called and stood, uh, the Lord came and stood and called as uh, at other times, uh, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. And you can read on later the, the conversation they had. You know what Samuel had to be taught how to do? He had to be taught how to listen to God. Listen to God. Do you know that God speaks to His children still today? Now, He's not going to speak in an audible tone the way He did with Samuel. He's not going to do that. This little guy isn't going to come running in your room saying, Did you call me? And you don't say to him, No, God's calling you, young man. Go back and have a conversation with God. There is not an audible conversation with God anymore. But if we're saved, God has given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to us from within. He uses our mind, our emotions, and He leads us and He guides us to know exactly what He wants us to do. You know, it was easier, please catch this, and I'm, I'm done with this thought. It was easier back in Samuel's day, because once he knew the, the sound of God's voice, he could communicate with them. Today, that's not how it works. You see, God speaks to us through our emotions. He speaks to us uh, uh, through our thoughts. He'll reprimand us when we're doing wrong. You say, well, pastor, isn't that the conscious? No, no, no. It's the conscious times about five. Okay? It's much stronger. It's much more obvious. And once that child in your arms, that child running around your house, that child who's yet a teenager begins to or knows Christ as their Savior, the Holy Spirit's been put inside of them and the Holy Spirit will lead and guide. And mom and dad, it is your job to teach them how to recognize that voice and how to follow that voice. Mom and dad, aunt and uncle, grandma, grandpa, Sunday school teacher, bus worker, church member. God has given us an awesome responsibility of taking the truths found in this book. And just like a runner passes the baton to the next relay runner, we are to take these truths and hand them to the next generation. And hopefully, they'll run a better race than even we've run. I believe Samuel was probably a greater Christian than his dad. And I hope my son grows up to be a greater Christian than me. We've got to do our part to dedicate ourselves to the Lord so that our children will dedicate themselves to the Lord. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning.
For those of you visiting this morning, I didn't really touch on or cover in any way the gospel in the sermon today. But let me just say that you don't get to heaven by being a good person. You get to heaven by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You say, well, that doesn't gel with what I've been taught. There comes a point in your life where you must look at what you've been taught. And you must look at the Bible. And if those two contradict, you've got to decide to stick with the Scriptures. In Acts chapter 16, the jailer in charge of Paul and Silas had locked up Paul and Silas because they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That jailer came running into the jail cell after a great earthquake, and he posed this question to God's apostles, or God's preachers. He said, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas did not look back at them and say, go live a good life and God will let you into heaven. No, no, no. He looked at them and said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If you're here today and you've not put all of your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Why not today call on his name and ask him to save you? How many here today say, Pastor Lejeune, there was a day and time in my life I trusted Christ to save me. I know I'm going to heaven, not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. Here's my hand in testimony of that. Would you raise your hand if you've made that decision personally? You can put your hands down. If there's one... If you're here today and you've not yet made that decision, it's really simple. You you turn from your belief system and you put your trust in Jesus alone to save you. Understanding that He lived, He died on the cross, He bore your sins on the Calvary. Your sin, my sin, collectively killed Him. Then He stood up from the dead, He defeated not only our sin, but our death curse. And He offers to you freely the gift of eternal life. All you've got to do is open your heart and let Him in. For those of you here that are saved today, how many of you would say, Pastor Lejeune, I want to do my part to help raise the next generation to love the Lord. Whether you're a parent here or not, whether you're a grandpa or not, grandpa or grandma, whether you have children that you directly touch or not, you say, Pastor, pray for me, I'll do my part to help raise this next generation to love the Lord. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Pastor, pray for me. I'll do my part to help help this generation love the Lord. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, in just a few moments we're going to stand. The piano is going to begin playing. Many, many of our church people will come down here and kneel, talk to the Lord in prayer. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus and you'd like help doing that, Brother Owens will be standing down front here. He would love to take the Bible and show you how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven right here on the front pew. We won't embarrass you. We just want you to have that settled before you leave. Let's stand together.